Hello and welcome to The Point of Everything. My name is Ono Sullivan and today's guest on the show is Paul Allwright, aka Lethal Dialect, a Dublin rapper who released his new album LD50 Part 3 earlier in February. It completes the LD50 trilogy for Allwright, who released the first album in the series all the way back in 2011. He also released another album as Lethal Dialect entitled 1988 and also completed one under his own name in 2018. He's among the most socially engaged rappers in the country. Louise Bruton, reviewing LD50 Part 3 for the Irish Times, says if he had hoped to deliver an optimistic conclusion on the LD50 trilogy, he makes a stronger impact by pointing out the flaws in moving forwards as a country when we can barely sustain ourselves when we're standing still. It's point echoed by Andrea Cleary in her great review of the record for the Journal of Music. She writes that New Voices in Irish hip-hop have emerged in the past decade to form a compelling, socially conscious scene, one with social justice at its heart. Lethal Dialect's LD50 Part 3 is, for a critical understanding of social life in Ireland, essential listening. The perspectives, settings and issues within confirm what we might already suspect, that the more things change, the more they stay the same. Allwright was among the many artists that had to cancel a gig in light of the coronavirus pandemic. He had been scheduled to play uh, an album launch party in the Button Factory on March 13th. That's been rescheduled to the 14th of August now. I call Paul via Skype, as many people around the country are doing at the moment. Skype, Zoom, Facebook Messenger... Google Hangouts, whatever you're having yourself. I called him via Skype over the weekend to discuss what he's up to amid COVID-19, why he returned to the Lethal Dialect moniker and style following Hungry, the solo album under his own name. We also talked about his writing style, collaborators, topics for rapping and lots more. First though, let's hear a snippet from one of the standout tracks from LD50 Part 3. This one's called K-District. Living in the K district, it's no picnic. They raise misfits who blow big clips and make hit lists. They don't miss kid, don't say shit if you've no business. They might mistake you for a state witness. Living in the K district, it's no picnic. They raise misfits who blow big clips and make hit lists. They don't miss kid, don't say shit if you've no business. They might mistake you for a state witness. Where we're from, they're not concerned with the political Conservatives and liberals, the squares and then the criminals We were taught to keep the verbal to a minimal Cause certain individuals be serving up medicinal Moving weight around the early is traditional The smarter heads know that when you're earning, keep invisible You rarely reach the pinnacle And if you do, your underboss bumps you off Cause business never personals the principle Still the younger boys swear that they're invincible But if they study history, they'd learn that shit is sick What goes around, comes around they say your early years are pivotal They taught me that reality's more scary than the fictional See me cousin rush to the emergency and critical Over the situation you would swear was only trivial I reckon that's the reason that I'm permanently cynical Even on a date I stay aware of me peripherals Living in the K district it's no picnic They raise misfits who blow big clips and make hit lists They don't miss kid, don't say shit if you've no business They might mistake you for a state witness Living in the K district 
Clips, no picnic, they raise misfit too low. Big clips and make kid list. They don't miss kid, don't say shit if you've no business. They might mistake it. So it's been it's been about a week of lockdown now, Paul. How have you been uh, handling the old coronavirus? Yeah, I only finished up at work um the day before yesterday, so we were at sort of late to the party, you know. So I mean it was kinda I was going over on my break and still buying me lunch and stuff like that, you know, so, uh, so just practicing the old social distancing and stuff like that, but I haven't really, I've sort of been still doing stuff, so today is really, yesterday was really my first day, you know. Uh, what What do you do? I just work in a sports shop. Okay. Yeah, I, uh, I have the old stockroom uh, job there, and that's great because... I just get all my writing done up there. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, shouldn't probably shouldn't be saying that in case my manager gets, gets wind of that. So that's that's. I mean, I've worked full time jobs of, in pretty much everywhere, you know. But this is the this is the one that allows me to to do me a bit of writing and that still, you know, or at least think. And I, I I've stuff to do, obviously, but it allows me time to think, which you don't get in a lot of other places, you know. So, so is that just kind of stopped now? Uh, as of two days ago, as we're recording, so on Thursday, it closed the doors because of the yeah. coronavirus. Yeah, yeah, doors are closed now for the foreseeable. So, right. How have you been finding it? Like, is the social distancing? Did you get used to it quite easier? Were you like, what, what the fuck is happening? Like, yeah, it's a, it's a cliche, but being social distancing for me have a fucking night, you know? <laughs> uh, and the self isolation, like, that's you know anyone who does a bit of writing in any shape or form is well used to it. Um, that's what we do as a as a as a hobby, <laughs> and so yeah. I mean, it's 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 a bit weird. It's strange seeing the um, you know the lack of people in public and stuff like that. I'm sure you've seen it when you went for a run yourself this morning. Uh, and there's a, there's an eeriness to it, and you know there's sort of an unknown an underlying anxiety through it all as well. That uh, you know. This thing, this thing has gone around, and anyone could have it at any minute. But I think uh, if you're prone to depression in any shape or form, that's also something you'd be familiar with. You know, uh, there's a lot of people only becoming aware of their own mortality now. It would seem, uh, and therefore, they're very tough. You know, I think you've two types of people. You people, uh, from what I can see, uh, seriously underestimating the risk of it and just being blasé about it, and then you people absolutely freaking the fuck out you know yeah um have, have you thought about like how you're gonna use it now the past couple of days since you've been um home are you planning on like right uh the next uh lethal dialect album or are you just kind of like we'll we'll see what happens we'll hunker down for a few days and see what happens yeah just seeing what happens uh you know i, tr- I try and be productive but i saw a thing on malali had up yesterday about you know all this shit shakespeare wrote king lear and quarantine and all this stuff and uh, it's just you know it's perpetuating that all capitalism thing of getting getting stuff done, and she was saying it might just be a time to do nothing. So uh, I'm sort of always uh, you know I get the PlayStation guilt. You know you're on a <laughs> yeah. you start getting guilty saying oh, I haven't done that in two hours. Shit, I better do something. So I'm actually you know I'm fairly prolific anyway. I'm always going to write something I have to do. So I'm actually going to try and uh, take that on board and actually do a bit of fuck all. <laughs> That sounds like a plan. Yeah, definitely. 
Uh, so I guess we're talking about the new album LD50 Part 3 which you released at the start of March and just before we talk about that like I guess the coronavirus hit you just like um, artistically because you had to cancel the headline gig at uh, the Button Factory last week wasn't it the 13th of March? Yeah 14th of March it was yeah. Were you kind of gutted about that for a while? A little bit I mean I just kind of see I I, I don't really see it as Everyone's in it together. That's the thing. It's not like, you know, there's other people out there making money or doing their thing or and I'm stuck in. It's everybody's in, in the same boat. So it's not really, you know, much of a loss. It's like when the same thing with people losing their jobs, you know, I'm, I'm not really bothered about that at the minute because everybody's in the same boat. So, you know, it's it's it you don't feel left out you know you're part of it so uh not really good i mean i have a lot of merch and a lot of cds sitting there right in front of me that would have been nice to sell uh but you know there'll be, there'll be more gigs there'll be more gigs yeah so tell me about um the album i was kind of surprised to see you go back to the lethal dialect moniker because you released a solo album a couple of years ago so how come uh you went back and back to this uh trilogy of albums uh, just because of the bombardment, the messages I get every single day off people saying LD50 was the albums that we loved and when's part three coming out. And so I was just basically harassed into the only. <laughs> um, but it was, it was a, uh, it's something that, you know, we kind of took for granted at the time. Um, working with GI, he was the first beat maker I worked with and he produced the majority of the first two, obviously. And, you start to take it for granted because it's the first producer you work with. But then, you know, it's been nearly 10 years since we did the first two. And as I say, just the messages constantly off people saying how much the first two meant to them. And, you know, it was the starting point for an awful lot of hip hop heads. A lot of the, the younger guys who are doing their thing now, are, you know, do say to me, that, that, you know, when Keep It Real went out and stuff like that. So, um. It was sort of that, and then also I'd done the the last album, which wasn't really a hip-hop album, and I just had sort of fallen out of love with hip-hop for a while, and there was a lot of personal stuff going on at the time, you know, my mother had passed away and stuff like that, and uh, I just, I've, I've, I missed it a bit, you know, and start listening to hip-hop again, the, the love for it came back, and I start writing again then it was like a backlog of stuff that because I hadn't written a, a straight hip hop song in four or five years you know it just came flooding back and uh, I just had fun and I wanted to recapture the buzz we had with with the first two albums where it was just us mates hanging around you know having a few smokes and writing music we wanted to to hear and it was just getting back to that a little bit as well, you know. I always sort of felt like I had unfinished business because I did say it'd be a trilogy and then I didn't finish the third part, so. Um, who, so who are the we that you're talking about there? Like, just looking at the guests who are on the album here, you've got Graham Thompson, you've got uh, Cal, G.I., Eve Jane Gaffney, Costello and Maverick Sabre. Are there any other names that are part of the Lethal Dialect album? Uh, no, that's pretty much it. For that one there, uh, and all the producers as well, you know, there's like uh, Milk and uh, Lil Pevy, Ira Kane, you know, a good few of those guys on there as well. Uh, but the the way is just basically me and G.I. and Costello and uh, Carl a bit later on then. And it was basically just uh, Costello was living in Blanche. I was living in Blanche at the time. Um, 
he had a studio set up just in one of the rooms in his house and we used to just chill around there for pretty much uh, every evening after work and bang out songs and then uh, myself, Costello, uh, my ex-girlfriend at the time and his sister moved into an apartment together and that was when I did part two and it was just, you know, we were doing it day in, day out and having a buzz with it and uh, so GI would pop up and you know, lads would come down and stay with us for a couple of days and just collaborate and yeah, that 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 was the way, you know, it was a fun time. Was that when you were maybe at your most prolific, do you think, when you're actually surrounded by these other people who make music? Yeah, definitely. I mean I th- I think I did I released my first album and then I released part two, I think eleven months after that or something. Um so I wrote it in something like eight or nine months, which, you know, was fairly unprecedented uh, for a hip-hop album. There's a, there's a lot of lyrics goes into it and stuff. Um, and that was just doing it every single day, really, you know, and having this setup there. I don't have a setup at home here. I have to kind of go to record, but when you could just go into the next room, press record and, and, and work away, um, yeah, definitely increased the, the output, you know. Tell me about when this album part three actually like started and when it finished and like how how did you work with the guys? Were you kind of like uh, just taking the words to them to make beats too, or was it more collaborative than that? Well, me and Gio, Gio was the sound of the LD Fifty Arms production wise. You know, we always had f- guest features on there as well, but he was the the sort of main producer who sort of created that trademark LD Fifty sound, a real dark brooding uh sample based but jazzy and you know uh boom bap as well uh but we hadn't spoken in a couple of years you know um so it was just a case of uh i was living in fingers at the time he's from fingers and one of our mates brought us down to the deputy mary invited two of us down we end up having a gargle and having a chat and never fell out around it was just literally like a communication and you know we used to always be in the in the apartment there uh, banging out songs and then when you leave that you know when you sort of don't have that you know people tend to just drift apart so just chatting away and almost picked up where we left off and that's what I was saying earlier you, you take for granted sometimes the the sound you had but it was only true messages from people that I realized that you know there was probably something a little bit different about the stuff I did with GI compared to everybody else because that's the sound that as I say, people were constantly messaging me saying, I, I want to hear that back, you know. Um, it was the most impactful uh, to them for some reason. So that was a big part of it as well. Just us reconnecting and having that chat. And he sent me stuff and, you know, straight away, even hit listening back to the way I sound over his stuff, it's like there's just a, a sort of chemistry there. Right, yeah. Um, and, and like lyrically, I guess you've been known pretty much from the start as rapping about um, social issues and very much like the, the state of the nation. Was there any deviation from that for this album? Because you can definitely hear it throughout uh, the album. I think that you're, you're still very much talking about like, you know, the boots on the ground stuff that's happening. Yeah. Yeah, it was just trying not to... I think on the last album, uh, and not to take away from the last album because it was, uh, you know, I'm definitely proud of it. It was very different for me and it was stepping out of comfort zone and that. But 
I think with the last album, we sort of reached, we were reaching for, you know, the next advancement kind of thing or, you know, the, trying to make the sound, make a sound evolve ourselves just through sheer force. And uh, I think with this album, I just, I didn't try, there was no agenda with trying anything. It was just, you know, I didn't try and make, political songs, I didn't try and make social issue songs, I wasn't trying to create a new sound, I wasn't trying to, it, you know, th there was no agenda at all, it was literally just get a shed load of beats off the lads and just write whatever the fuck comes to mind, you know, and that was, um, that was pretty much it, and then there's certain things I noticed about it that's different to the first two, you know, like there's, there's more humour in this one, and uh, that's something people keep pointing out as well, and Again, that's something I, I didn't try for, you know. It's just something that happened naturally. And I suppose the, the first two were nearly 10 years ago. And that's obviously just something that comes with age, you know. You start looking at things less seriously and start to see the funny side in it a lot as well. Right. Um. Ju just because you mentioned it a couple of times, you're talking about uh, the solo album in 2018, Hungry, that you released yeah. under your own name, like saying that it's not a hip hop album, that maybe you tried to reach for something else. Like, is at, at the time, like, were you proud of it? And have you kind of, like, are you still proud of it? Or, or are you kind of like a little disappointed from, like, maybe the ideas that you had weren't properly realized? Yeah, I'm still proud of it, but I think the same as well. I think some of the ideas probably weren't that realized either you know it was just uh, I, I sort of had an agenda with that album and the agenda was make an album that isn't hip-hop that was the that was the big like you know get out of hip-hop category don't be uh pigeonholed as a as a rapper you know do something like bit of singing bit of spoken word and stuff like that um and maybe if i had done it and approached it with less of an agenda you know like i, I was i don't know like it, it's sort of hard to verbalize it's just when i listen back to it now it's um i mean some of the songs that i think the likes are all love and that you know where i i was almost letting the rap happen a little bit um yeah it's it's hard to explain it's just sort of an album that i'm, I'm definitely proud of but I, I think you know i was i was putting the uh, parameters on it which was ironic because it was supposed to be an album that was free from that you know but it was like no, I can't put a verse on here. I know I can't do this. It has to be something different. I suppose that's what it was. Uh, trying so hard to be different rather than maybe accepting some of the things. Like, there's probably songs on that that I could have done with a bit of straight hip-hop on it, you know? Okay. And and so, like, why did you want to get away from hip-hop in the first place? Like, was it just because you didn't want to be pigeonholed or was there, was there any other reasons? There was loads of different... It was, like, it was sort of a sort of a mixture of reasons uh as i said it was personal stuff like my mother was passing away at the time and she uh she always just said you know that the, the type of music you make isn't isn't you know you know make an underground hip-hop in dublin like it's it's not sustainable and it's definitely not going to be a uh, financially viable in any shape or form would you not would you not go back to college you know so there was part of that, and she, it was just she knew she was passing away and she wanted to instill in me, you know, you, you really, are you really going to be able to make a career from this or, or are you going to be able to survive from it, you know? Because uh, she knows how much time, she knew how much time went into it and as I say, you know, I, I've sort of sacrificed the last couple of years of work, uh, jobs that aren't 
great, well-paid jobs in order to have me time, you know, and I've started to sacrifice money for time quite a bit. And I suppose I was, I was approaching 30 as well. That was a big thing. I was like, do I really want to be in my fucking mid-30s and, you know, doing the same stuff I was doing in my early 20s. It was part of that as well. Um, and then the part of it is, was just like, you know, wanting to do something that, like Damo would have been an influence. We were on tour with Damo and, you know, you just see the type of music Damo does and the stuff he does. He could go to a pub in the back of security and play and people get it. And you can't really do hip hop outside the main cities, you know, in, in Ireland. They just don't get it. So part of it was like, well, you know, if it's sort of, there's bits of hip hop where it's spoken more than many, you could go up and do a poem and people would get it, you know. Um, and that was where I think the thinking faltered a little bit, you know. I shouldn't have really been thinking like that. I should have just been focused on the album and not where you can play it, you know. And that's what I meant earlier by region. So there's a couple of different reasons and, then when I start writing this one, as I say, the agenda was gone. It was like, I don't care about age. And apart, my mother passing away was probably part of it because that pressure to sort of, you know, show her or, or, you know, give her an idea that I was doing some stuff that might be more, uh, well, might be received by more people, might put her at ease a little bit, you know. Um, and then when that was gone, I was just like, nah, look, if I was sort of disheartened and I didn't want to really do music. And I was like, look, if I'm if I'm going, if I'm continuing to do music, it has to be the same buzz that I got when I was uh, starting out. And I was just doing it because I enjoy doing it and saying some shit that I want to grab my chest and no other agenda with it, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, do, you, do you think that you've kind of come to terms with like, you know, just I think a lot of musicians would say that like it's almost impossible to have a career just music in Ireland like it is it's like hobby isn't the right word for it but like it is kind of like a side hustle sort of thing like have you have you have you kind of come to terms with that that like I just enjoy doing this like I'll keep on doing it and I'll keep on doing it into my mid-30s and maybe later as well yeah definitely and that was a big thing you know it was like I was sort of saying to myself you know I'm approaching 30 now and when I was working on the last one, um, and I was like, "So we really, am I really going to keep putting time into this?" You know, and sort of that pressure you're putting on yourself to to do things you deem necessary in order to have a better chance at crafting a career out of it. But I think, you know, even when I was writing songs that were supposed to be commercial, radio friendly songs, I always bottled it and wrote something that was like darker than it should have been, or you know, said some stuff that they, I knew they definitely weren't going to play. So part of me was always saying, this is not me. And then it was like the other pressures were sort of forcing me into even trying to make music like that at all. So I just realised, well, like, it's underground, it's Dublin, it's in your face, it's it's not commercially viable in any shape or form. And that, I'm cool with that now, you know. Uh, and that's the way I was when I was doing my first couple of albums. And then you start to get a little bit of success. You go on the road with a few people and, you know, you say, geez, I'd love this, like, you know. Uh, but you can still do that. It's just more of a, It was just more of a naive approach then, you know. I, I, just, I did my first solo tour there before Christmas, you know. Um, so you can do, I can still do all these things, but I was, it was just in the wrong mind state at the time, you know, and definitely just accepted now that 
this is something that I'm just always going to be doing, you know. Um, maybe not necessarily uh, always hip hop either, because you know, I think writing is the thing that I'm interested in. I would love to evolve into writing in, in another format. Uh, and I'd say, but I'd say I'll always come back. You know, I'll, I'll go five or six months without writing a hip hop song. I'll hear the Manly B or the GIB, and then I'll just be back again. You know, probably well into my forties. <laughs> It does seem like rap and hip-hop has become a lot more of a, a scene, I suppose, in Dublin and beyond in Ireland as well, compared to when you first came out back in like 2010 or 2011. Like, do you feel part of any particular scene in Dublin? Like, there's a whole host of uh, rappers that we could uh, list off, but like, do you feel like there is kind of a, a nice scene there and kind of an accepting scene? Yeah, it's 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 a it's a good collective. Uh, I've just always sort of been of the thing, you know. I, I hate when people get too sceny and do it for the scene and push the scene for Because in my experience, the people who focus on the scene are the people who sort of don't really do much themselves individually, and it's a way of them acquainting themselves with the people who do do work. You know what I mean? So for me, the scene is thriving now because. As a, it's thriving now collectively because people have been doing their own stuff individually, and I think collaboration collaboration is an important part of it. And but collaborating for the for the right reason for the right song, not just because uh so and so is coming up now and Jay's he's getting a load of hits on on a, on Spotify or do a track with him. You know what I mean? It's it has to be natural. It has to be because. Too hard to sound great together because there's artists there that I, I appreciate and, and I love the music they do. But if I was to jump on a track with them, it, I just think it'd be chalk and cheese. I don't think it'd work, but I'd still be fans of their music and and appreciate them. And uh, but yeah, I think it's 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 thriving now just because the standard is just being raised all the time as well. So when people come up, there's a certain type of you know quality you have to have in order to be uh to be considered as part of that as a uh, in the sort of top echelons of people who are put, putting out good stuff so the quality itself is sort of you know ensured that the younger guys coming up are putting serious time into that work as well which is a good thing too and and like there's one line that uh jumped out there's a couple of lines on brand new on the album um that really jump out at me one of them is uh ain't nobody where i'm from going to college in BIM. <laughs> uh like does it kind of feel like you know like you haven't lost that kind of edge that kind of i don't know if you've got like a me against the world mentality yeah i definitely always had a chip on me shoulder absolutely especially in the music scene because um not many people in music with my accent and then not many people in hip hop either, really, you know. Um, and I think it. I think the the weird compromise with art is that because, like we were saying earlier, it's almost a thing of, you know, I, I, as I was saying, I've had to work certain jobs to afford me the time to be able to do this because so much goes into it, you know, and that's a sacrifice, and uh, it's a bit, it's unprecedented, especially for my family, you know, like my parents would be staunch working class and 99% of creativity is pricking around and to them pricking around means they're just afraid of work, you know, you're, 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 you're just lazy. So that's, that's partly where the, the sort of 
as I said again with the last album, reaching for that thing to, you know what I mean? That was always instilled there. Um, and I think part of the reason with that, there's an awful lot of, you know, like in the States, obviously hip hop is a, you know, it's a, it's a black music form that originated in, in, in New York, you know what I mean? In black communities. And you could look at that two ways. Uh, they're black, but they're working class as well, you know. And it was them sort of voicing their their grievances with the with the system, and it became a a lucrative career to have, and that just kept perpetuating it. Then, you know. But I think most, you know, I I think if you looked at it proportionally, I'd say there's proportionally less uh, working class musicians doing this all the time because they just can't afford it. You know what I mean? It's so I've sort of always had a chip in that regard that, you know, I know the, the, the sort of time and effort and sacrifice and, you know, I, I would have never got sent to college and BM. That wasn't a real thing, you know what I mean? Um, so I had to deal with the hard way. So that sort that kind of thing, you know. And, but I suppose I wouldn't have put the effort in and, and you know, worked as hard as I did if, if I had been afforded those opportunities. I would have just seen it as another thing as well. So... I don't say chipping the shoulder as in I'm angry, but chipping the shoulder is, as in uh, just always felt like a bit of an outsider, you know, and that's, I'd, I'd take, poke holes in that and, you know, take the piss out of it a little bit. Um, yeah. And I do think that there is also that kind of like, I don't know, I don't know if you've um, like got a love-hate relationship with where you're from in Dublin, but I think that's what the K district relates to, isn't it? Maybe you could kind of explain that, that title uh, to someone from Cork who isn't that familiar with that, with Dublin outside the city centre. Yeah, K district is the, it's the name the Garda call Blanche, Cabra and Fingers, and they're three places I've lived in, you know. Um, so it's, it's yeah, it's love hate. I mean, it's it's the it's the I don't want to say the real side of Dublin, but it's the it's the side of Dublin where the vibrant side, the the communal side. You know, it's it's where all the the townies moved out from initially, and they were fucked out of tenements and left in these places. And uh, some would be more communal than others, you know, there'd be more of a community sense in Cabra than there would be in, in Blanche, say, because uh, when I moved to Blanche from Cabra, I just couldn't believe how much people hate each other up here <laughs> and only lived across the road from each other, you know. Um, and yeah, like, that's what I'm saying, you, you know, you take pride in it and I love it and the people there are great and I think the most interesting stories come from there, but you also have your other side of it where it's like, as I say, you know, it's there's not people going to BIM from many of these areas, and there's certain there's disadvantages, obviously, as well, you know. Um, like a lot of the guys I know that do music that are from working class areas, it's like they've a bit of post traumatic stress from growing up from some of the shit they've been through, you know what I mean? And that allows them to create amazing art, but it doesn't, they just haven't got. It, it sometimes it's it's difficult for them to they're sort of stuck in a in a certain mentality. It's difficult for them to you know get in and say meet meet people from the media or you know other musicians who aren't from where they're from. It's a very uh, sort of insular mindset that can cut off a lot of opportunity sometimes. You know, um, and it's it's just it's it's instilled. It's like 
it's distrust, it's, uh, you know, a little bit of paranoia maybe. And I've had all those things as well, you know, I've worked on them to try and do away with them, but they're, they're still there a bit, you know. And I, like I had, I'm from those areas and I'm, I'm talking about some of the more extremes, the hurdies in it, because they're the, the ones that are interesting to me. But I had a, a, a good upbringing, you know what I mean? My man that sent me to college and all, I dropped out of college and broke the hearts when I left college to do this thing, you know? Um, but it's always there. When you go out in these areas, it's always there. It's family, it's friends, it's your neighbour. It's, it's always someone there that's uh, living right on the edge, you know? Yeah. Did did you ever have that mentality of like, you know, I've got I've got to leave this place to kind of uh to kind of make it or anything like that? Or were you always like, you know, this is where I want to live, this is where I want to like create my art? Yeah, well that's you can kind of see the shift and that was what I was talking a bit about earlier. Like that the hungry thing was sort of like I need to leave that now and, you know, get a band, I can't be doing stuff with a DJ anymore. That was all part of that I think you know that was subconsciously stuff that was going on um but now I'm like it's 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 definitely some if I could afford if I could afford it because I'd, I'd always love to go back to Cabra because just the the walking distance from town and that you know we used to walk into town when we lived there and things like that but they put the Lewis in now so the prices are at the skyrocketing so they're gentrifying it. It's becoming a new stony batter, so I don't think I'll get back there, which is which is the irony, you know. Can't afford to get back there now. Right. Yeah. Uh, what? How do you feel about Dublin at the moment? Just kind of like like kind of the the wider reach of the place. Like, do you still like really really love it? And like, would you worry for the future of what it's going to look like, or are you kind of like it? It has to change to survive. A little bit of both, yeah. I mean, I think. Uh, it has to change, but it doesn't have to change the way it's changing now, you know. And part of that is just all the culture being taken away. I really think, like, I know it's, I don't want to say it's a good thing because it's not a good thing. It's going to kill people, uh, this pandemic, you know. And that's the bottom line. People are going to die from it. It's, it's certainly not a good thing, but I, I think one of the good things we can take from it is I really think it's going to remind people of the shit that matters after this, you know. And... Um, I don't think people are going to be taking half as much shit anymore. I think a lot of people are going to find themselves when they're sort of on lockdown, you know, not following blind consumerism and advertising and spending time with their family. And, and, and you know, you see the thing with like 30,000 people applying to help the HSE and stuff like that. If the HSE put a call out, uh, you know, when if capitalism was still functioning, and they put a call out. I think most people would be too busy or be too caught up to do it. But now that they're putting a call out and it just so happens that all the places are, you know, are closing down. And I think that's a, that's a massive thing. People are realizing now what they want to do, what matters. Uh, and I, I think part of that is it's regain, we're regaining the sense of community that was lost because everything's been about the individual, you know, everything's, individualism and i think we're going back to that communal spirit and i think once you go back there once you once you live that i don't think anyone's going to be the same after this you know so i would expect i know the government are saying oh you know they're pulling money out out of money tree that isn't there 
when they're trying to solve homelessness or you know the health crisis but all of a sudden it's there now I know they're saying that we're going to have to pay that back and it's with the economic fallout it's going to be another couple of years of austerity but I just think people are just going to say no this time you know um, and not accept that I think that's the that's the good thing about it I, th- I think as well like the long term effects uh, of the coronavirus are really going to hit home in the summer just because like tourism which Ireland has just been banged the drum about for years and years like look at how many hotels are being built at the moment like they're they're all going to be empty like yeah. over the summer so I think it maybe it will make the planners kind of reassess things like this isn't uh, a fail safe option tourism that we do have to like you know, su- support the local communities, I suppose. Absolutely. I think a lot of developers are going to go bust after this. And you see the Airbnb industry is, uh, the arse is falling out of it now as well, which is great because all, all of a sudden all these properties are going up for long-term rent and possibly for sale. And I think the whole bubble is, is going to burst again. And I know it's going to have an economic impact on, you know, people on people's jobs and that. But it's, it, it'll be a slow recovery. I, I think there's an awful lot of businesses as well. Like we, I've worked in, as I say, I've worked in jobs that weren't paying that much in order to have me time. And like pretty much every place I've worked in, like that, it's just they're just they, they're taking so many shortcuts. You know, whether it's the very very small hour contracts, expecting so much from the staff for so little pay. Uh, just, I mean, there was a place I know of that were taking in transition year students all the time, and basically free. You know, they had to work for free under the guise of are they there for that transition thing? Uh, and like all these, all these, like just pure exploitation. Uh, I think it's going to do away with a lot of those companies. You know, I think companies who haven't been sort of following the right procedures and and have been relying on shortcuts aren't going to be around. And I know, you know, I don't want to say it's totally a good thing because there are good companies and good people going to be out of work from this as well. But um, I think it's going to change the way people do business. I think think the housing market is going to be a lot different when things start picking up as well, you know. And as you say, what, what the fuck are you going to do with all these hotels, you know? Yeah, we'll wait and see. Um, ornamental come, apartments yeah uh, coming back to the music one one last song I wanted to uh, talk to you about on the album is To Whom It May Concern which is Eve Jane Gaffney is yeah. the female voice on it and it kind of sees her taking the role of a drug addict seeking help from her TD played by you tell, tell me about that song and where that story came from it just kind of came from that's Eva who performs and that is, is my girlfriend, you know, and she's uh, we were sort we've been living together well we were living together, both was at back home and in uh, in my dad's and she's back home with her parents because you know, the landlord sold up. So we sort of found ourselves in a similar boat, but it was it's just been like just the last few years of renting and, and it was just sort of exploring the idea of, you know, someone's in a more extreme case than us. Uh, and sort of had a, you know, an addiction problem, but was trying hard to get out of it. Like you'd be fucked. Like you know, we were we were finding hard. We we both had our full faculties, and you know, both able to work and stuff like that, and 
had a bit of support there, then we were finding it tough. Uh, so you can only imagine, you know, what somebody in that position is going through, and just the sort of callousness of, of politicians and things like that. Uh, that's the the big story of where I wrote it, but the small story of where I wrote it is because they had pretty much all the other songs done, and Cal, who's on it said to me, oh, you need a storytelling song on this. LD always had a storytelling song. So I was like, great, what the fuck will I write about? So that was that was the short uh, reason why. But yeah, it's just, it was it was more explored than that. And vent of my frustrations, but not the only two personally, you know what I mean? Because there is worse, and that's the thing. As bad as we had it, like, you know, we had, we, we, we had a place, we had a, a room, we had a roof over our heads, and it was tough. There's times when it was tough, and you know you're, you're saying, "Where's the next?" You know, you get cut down the hours a few bit more. You're saying, "Where's the next bill getting paid from?" And stuff like that. But as as much as we were in that position, we were like, "Well, look, there's always always some remorse," you know. And then stories as well. I have a couple of friends who are youth workers in Ballymun and stuff like that. I would have known the stuff that was going on uh, with you know, people asking for help and it, it becoming a, uh, then becoming political further then, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a striking song. It really um stands out from the album, which is uh, great by the way. So congratulations on the album. Just such a strange time to be uh, releasing it into, I yeah, suppose. But is, like, yeah. what can you do? Like, yeah, I suppose the only worst thing releasing an album in a pandemic is going through a pandemic where they haven't released an album, you know, because uh, people are in and they're streaming a bit and, you know, it's getting more listens maybe than it, than it might have. Uh, so, yeah, I have to try and see some positive in it, even though all my merch and CDs are there gathering dust. <laughs> Well, I mean, like, look, I mean, if supplies run low, at least, you, at least you've got plenty of uh, of them to keep you warm and to, to stack up at night. Yeah, absolutely. I'll be, I'll be, if things go very uh, terribly, I'll be using, using them to build fires and whatnot, you know. <laughs> um, listen, thanks a lot for the, uh, for the chat and uh, best luck with everything and best of luck, like, just uh, surviving the, the whole coronavirus thing. You too, but you too.